you understand what an audible is. Sometimes you get to the line of scrimmage and you do something a little different. And I don't like being back there. I like being down here where I can see your eyeballs. And so uh, we're going to do that this morning. If you got your Bible, and I hope that you do, turn to Matthew chapter 5. When the Apostle Paul was preaching, they told him to stop or they were going to beat him. And he said, great, that'll be fine because then I can fellowship in the sufferings of Christ and we'll be even closer. And they said, well, I'll tell you what, then, if you don't stop, then we'll just kill you. And he said, that's fine, because to be absent from the bodies, be present with the Lord, do what you must. And it frustrated the people that persecuted him because they realized, and other believers, because they realized that there was nothing they could do to them. Because we just sang a song about being free. And we have an idea in our mind of what that looks like. But the Apostle Paul and the other disciples realized and understood what freedom really was. Because there's nothing that God gives us like joy and peace and long-suffering, all those fruits of the Holy Spirit. None of those things can be taken from us by anyone, any regime, any persecution or anything. So they didn't really know what to do with these cats. This morning, um, I want to share something with you. And I want to be real honest with you right up front. I, mean, I think you figured out pretty quickly that I don't know really any other way to be. I don't have all the answers for what I'm going to share with you today. A lot of times people think, well, you're the pastor, you're the preacher, you're the evangelist, you're the whatever. You're the Sunday school teacher. You're the one that's doing all this. You're supposed to have all the answers, and you're supposed to know how this is going to go, right? But I want to tell you this morning, I don't. But I'm going to share some things with you that I've noticed. Like the apostles did, and like they did, if you read in the book of Acts, it says that they, they constantly shared with people what they had seen and what they had heard. This morning, I'm going to share with you some things that I have seen, some things that I have heard, and then I'm going to, we're going to go into the Scriptures and I'm going to challenge you this morning. I put on Facebook the other day, out on the church page, I don't know if you did it or not, if you've got a bulletin, you've got a scratch piece of paper, I want to encourage you to take out a piece of paper, take out a pen, and if you need to go get one in the back, go get a bulletin, get a pencil, whatever, feel free, you're not going to bother me, I'm going to keep going, but you go back and get one, and I'm going to encourage you to do that, and, and as I go through this today, I want you to take, these, these are notes not for anyone else, these notes are for you. Nobody's going to read them. I'm not going to ask you to hand them in so we can hold them up. But as we go through some of the things we're going to go through today, and if you're at home watching on the Internet, I want you to do the same thing. Go get a pencil. Go get a pen. Uh, get a 3 by 5 card. Get a napkin. Get a paper towel. I don't care. But I want you, and I'm going to pray in just a moment, and I want you to pray with me that the very Holy Spirit of God would begin to open your heart and reveal to you anything that he needs you to know. Anything that he needs to reveal to you about you as we preach today. And as he does that, I want you to jot it down on that piece of paper. 
because at the end of the service today, we're going to go into a time of prayer. And I'm going to invite you to take those things and to lay them out before the Lord. I began to notice something a few years ago, actually about 10 or 15 years ago. As a pastor, I want to just say something before I go into this, this, this part of it. My heart's heavy today a little bit. I shared some of that with y'all on Wednesday that we're here. I want to be as transparent as I can. I want to be as biblical as I possibly can. I've got a few more weeks left here. And in my prayer this week, I began to ask the Lord, Lord, what can I leave this church? Not that we'll make them better churchmen, but we'll make them closer to you. I said this last week. What is it that I can say? What is it that I can do according to your word? And he gave me something to share with you. And I began to notice a few years ago something happening amongst professing Christians. Now, I'm going to use some language today that's very intentional, and I'm going to tell you what that is so you know what I'm talking about. You'll notice today, and I might slip back and forth, but I'm going to try really hard to use terms like the kingdom to talk about all believers everywhere all the time, and the church meaning the same thing, but I'm going to use a different term called professing Christians, or you might even say religious professing Christians as a contrast to that. But I began to notice amongst professing Christians, people that say I love Jesus, that there was a phenomenon that really began to bother me as a pastor, as a believer. And that was simply this, that professing Christians that say I love Jesus and I follow the Lord could be confronted with the truth of the Word of God and it made zero impact on their life. And that grieved my soul because the Bible says about itself, guys, that it is the living, breathing, manifested creator God of the universe in the flesh, in the text, the Logos in John chapter 1. The Word became flesh and, built and dwelt among us. It is the very voice of God. So the reason that that bothered me is because that people who professed to follow Jesus would hear the words of Jesus and ignore them and not be touched by them. And that bothered me. You know what bothered me even more? Is that sometimes I too would hear the words of the Lord and not be touched by them. As a pastor, I've gone through seasons in my life of coldness towards the people of God and the things of God and have done the duties of the pastor out of the flesh simply because I didn't feel the fire. And I know that exists, and that's kind of some of what I'm talking about today. But more deeply than that, I'm not talking about an occasional season. I'm talking about a lifestyle of being confronted by the Word of God and not changed. I'll give you some examples. Years ago, and I'll go through these really quick because I want to get to somewhere, and I've got a lot of Scripture I'm going to walk you through, but we're going to do it quickly. We're not going to do an exegesis on it because you know the passages. Many years ago, 
we had a youth pastor, great guy, loved him. Youth group was doing well, was growing. They were growing in the Lord more than they were growing in numbers, which is really what I cared about. I didn't care if there were a thousand kids there. If they weren't growing deeper in their knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, I had no, no care if there were five, but they were coming into a greater knowledge of the Lord and, the, and Christ was being formed in them, then I was, I was happy. Well, guess what happened? Because he did things a little differently. He didn't go to Six Flags as much. He didn't go to youth camp like everybody else. He actually made sure that the students lived out the words of this book that Jesus says we're supposed to be, and he would call them on it and hold them accountable on it. And instead of youth camp one year, we went on a mission trip down into the coast after the, after the hurricanes, and they scooped up debris for a week instead of going to youth camp and sliding water slides. When the tornadoes hit Joplin, uh, you remember when the, the big tornado hit Joplin, the week after that, we took a, a group of youth into the, the war zone. And they spent a week, two weeks actually, some of them in the, you know, after that, scooping up stuff and carrying things and going on mission trips, and it made some of our parents angry. And they began to come to me and say, we want him fired. And I said, well, okay, um, what's your beef? Long story short, by the time I talked with everybody, I had a list of people that wanted him to stay and the people, a list of people that wanted him to go. And the question that I ask them is, is I, I'm not here to make a decision. I just want to hear from you what's your reason. What's your reason for him to go? What's your reason for him to stay? This group over here that wanted him to stay said, we love him. He teaches us about the word. He's helping us as parents to train up our children in the way that they should go. He's not supplanting us. He's pushing them back to us. He's complimenting us, and he's always pointing them to Jesus, and he's making them serve others, and we love that. This group over here said, well, we're not, we haven't gone to Six Flags. We didn't like the mission trip. Our kids are not having enough fun. I wish I could make this up. So I took the list back to the deacons, and I said, guys, y'all have got a decision to make. If you decide to get rid of him, you're going to have to get rid of me too, number one. And number two, I'm going to make you stand up in front of the church and you're going to read this list and take the responsibility for the decision that you're about to make. I'm not going to do it for you. And we took the word of God back to some of those families and said, I think you're heading the wrong direction. You're pursuing the wrong things. And there was a mass exodus. And it blew my mind. In the wake of that was when one of the guys that I've told you about before, when I asked him, sir, why are you leaving the church? He said, you, you use too much scripture. I honestly, you know, I tell that kind of, and we laugh. That's tragic. I didn't know how to respond. Then a few years later, about, oh, I guess, about three years ago, we started this ministry, The Crucible's Fire. And we started it with focusing on discipleship and training people. And I got a whole other sermon about how we approach. And, and my, my mind has even changed because we, we have it like this idea that there's a conversion and then maybe hopefully we have discipleship somewhere. And I want to tell you that they're, they're one and the same. They're not two separate events. And we get that mixed up. 
But we began to go in. I would meet the, the, the focus of the ministry was I want to help small churches just like this one that don't know how to do personal discipleship. And, and maybe it's because no one's ever discipled you. And, and you know what I found? People were saying, they would say, honestly, brother, I don't even know what that means. And so we would go in and I would start to show them some of my stuff. And it was geared towards teenagers at the time because that was the avenue that opened up. And I, I remember a, a youth pastor that I sat with and he, and he looked at me and said, oh, this looks great. He said, I've only got one issue. And I said, what, what's that? And he said, there's a lot of Bible reading in that for them. Yeah? And he said, but I, I think they're going get, to get, get bored with that. Okay? I could tell you story after story after story after story after story after story of families that would come to us and say, my marriage is on the rocks. What do we do? And I would take them to the Word of God, and i say, here's what the Word of God says that you can do. I don't think so. I can't do that. I've sat in deacons' meetings and had a deacon take his Bible, and I opened it up, and we were wanting to do something, and I said, we can't do that. The Word of God prohibits it. And I actually had a deacon tell me in a deacons' meeting, I don't care what that book says. We've always done it this way. The next statement out of my mouth was, is, I, will, I will entertain your letter of resignation by the end of the day. And it began to blow my mind that people who profess to be followers of Jesus myself included from time to time, can be confronted with the Word of God, know the truth, and ignore it. Then this last Wednesday happened. And my heart was grieved. My heart was not grieved politically. My heart was not grieved because my guy was under attack or your guy was under attack or anything like that. You want to know why my heart was grieved? Because I saw yet another, not an isolated incident, but a widespread incident where amongst the religious professing Christian group that I adhere to was behaving in a way from time to time, and I'm not talking about on the national scene. I'm talking about people that I know. Things coming out of their mouth. Unable to take correction from the word. Looking at it, knowing the truth and ignoring it. Because I love the church. I love the bride of Christ because he loves the bride of Christ. He died for her. I looked in John. Well, let me back up one more thing. I began to notice something about two years ago that plays into this. In my sphere of influence, there are two distinct groups of people that I encounter within, uh, in my experience, the evangelical American church. But this, Tim was saying this morning, this is true all over the world. Two distinct groups. On this side, on this hand, I, I've got the group, I would call them great churchmen. Been in church their whole lives and they know the drill. They've been to Awanas, they've been to the, 
the RAs and GAs, and they, they got the, you know, they look like General Patton coming in, but they got all their buttons on and everything. I mean, and, and not that any of that's bad, but they, they're doing the deal. But it always just kind of seems up here, superficial. And all of the people that I have told you stories about so far, that confronted with the Word of God, but unchanged, would all also be in that group. They're not bad folks. But then there was this other group that I keep bumping into. Sometimes it would be at church. Sometimes it would be at a conference. And it would take about five minutes of conversation, and I would be like, whoo, we got a live one here. The Spirit that's in me, the Holy Spirit of God, and the Holy Spirit of God that's in them would bear witness with each other, and something would click, and I would just know they were kingdom-minded, bride of Christ, Jesus-following people. And there was a stark contrast between the two, even though the two groups seemed to be running together all the time. This week... I was confronted with a situation that's very close to me where someone who has historically been a professing believer has not only experimented with but embraced full on a life of sin. And they've been confronted with the word. And they've ignored it. And I want to tell you, it crushed my soul. Because I love them deeply. In John chapter 14 and verse 15, the Bible says, If you love me, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, I want to be very transparent and open with you this morning. I, I do not believe that you can work your way into heaven and salvation. But I also believe that when a faith that is real and is a saving faith comes in to live and the Holy Spirit comes in and lives within your person according to the authority of the Word of God, something changes. It doesn't all change at once. There's different degrees that we, we march down. and I, I promise you, if you go back into my walk, Tim will tell you, if you go back into my walk 25 years ago, the things I would say are different than they were now because I was not as mature. Not that I am mature, but I was even less so then. It, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a continuous uh, uh, continuum of development. If you go into Matthew chapter 5, turn with me there, go with me there. Here's the dilemma that I had. This is the Sermon on the Mount. The words of Jesus. We can go to this and, and get a lot of information about how we ought to behave. Not just how we ought to behave, but how we ought to think. How we ought to feel. How the kingdom of God works. And I began to read things like this. In verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And so if we are followers of Jesus and we're doing what Jesus says and we believe this book, should we not be poor in spirit? The Bible goes on to say in verse 5, and I'm going to jump, I'm not going to go through all of these. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. This week, 
About 90% of what I've seen out of professing evangelical Christians has been nothing but pride and vitriolic spew, not humility. The Bible says there in verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. I see a lot of people in, the, in, in, in my sphere, in the religious circles, not thirsting for righteousness, but thirsting for validation. They don't want to, you, don't, you can't preach on holiness anymore, they'll run you out of town. Where's the hunger for righteousness? A little bit later in the passage, after he talks about us being salt and light, you get down to verse 21, and you start talking about murder. I really hope nobody in here is guilty. We could probably all sit here and say, well, I've never done that. But Jesus ratchets the ante up a little bit and says, it's not about you actually doing it. He says, I'm worried about your heart. You can hold bitterness and hatred in your heart, and you're just as guilty as a murderer. And so I look at the, the, the Christian, professing Christian group that I bump into. Not, I'm, not, I'm not meaning Furtville Baptist Church. I'm talking about within all of my spheres of influence for the last 25 years. And over the last week or so, I've heard so much hatred and bitterness and, and garbage coming out of people that say we love Jesus. That's not what the Bible says that we're supposed to be doing. It goes on to say in verse 27, talking about adultery. I know this one's sticky. Somebody might say, well, I'm just looking. I heard a guy say one time, said, just because I'm married doesn't mean I can't look. Just because I'm on a diet doesn't mean I can't look at the menu. Yes, it does. And you know what? If you're a moral guy following Jesus, whether you're single or married, stop looking at the menu. Because he says adultery starts in the heart. Oh, well, I, I thought it, but I didn't act on it. Jesus raises the ante and he says, just about anybody can keep themselves from acting. I'm interested in your heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, the Bible will tell us. So we can tell when there's garbage and sewage and nastiness coming out of our mouths, guess where it's really coming from? It's coming from the inner parts of your soul. Later on in that text, he says in verse 38, talking about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and he says if someone compels you to go one mile, go with them too. We live in a culture right now that says, in, in, the, in the professing Christian community, that says, not only I don't want to go two, but I'm not even going to go one because it's going to be an inconvenience for me. What's in it for me? What he's calling us to here is a radical, different way of living. And then something happened in my studies. Stay with me. Because I'm still asking myself this question. What happened? Why? Why is it that the Word of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, can fall upon a group of people that profess to be followers of God and so blatantly, intentionally, 
and willfully at times ignored. Then I get to Matthew 7. And I had a realization. A realization that caused me an incredible amount of grief. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, if you want to go there with me. The Bible says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who go through it. So how narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life and few that find it? We live in a culture that says if your church is booming and growing and you're running a thousand people, then you got all these people with you, then God's moving and he's doing what's <laughs> He's doing great. Everybody's getting along. Everybody's coming. Oh, I want to throw a caution out to us for that because many find this easy path. If you look what the text says there, he says narrow is the gate. So the, 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 the entrance is, is little bitty. It's, it's, it's small. It's not as easy to get in as the big gate. But then he says, and there are few that find it. That rocked me into deep parts of my soul that I don't like to talk about at parties. Because you know what that means? That means I've got people in my family that I love dearly that can't find the narrow gate with radar. And they know the way. They know the path. They've seen the text. And that terrifies me. When I got to verse 21 of Matthew chapter 7, is when I had this watershed moment about all of these things I've been talking to you about. Now, here's where I want to interject that I don't know the answer I don't know how all this works out, but I do know of the great probability that it doesn't come out well. In verse 21, the Bible says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Drive out demons in your name? And do many miracles in your name? And then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Here was the, I, I heard a guy say this one time, and I never really put it into my hard drive, another pastor. It came back to me as I was studying. Look right at me. According to this text, your profession of faith, even your profession of works, means nothing all by itself. But I made a profession of faith... These folks had done far more than profess. These are what I call the, 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 the varsity. We would promote them. 
We would put them in charge of Sunday school. We would make them elders and deacons. And yet, he says, depart from me. Why? They would say, but Jesus, I know you. I know who you are. And I can just almost hear him, him saying, well, the demons also know who I am. And they shudder and they worship. Knowing who Jesus is is not the point. Jesus knowing who you are is the point. But it gets worse. Look in verse 24. Therefore, and you know what? I, I learned this a long time ago when you're studying the Bible. Anytime there's a therefore, this is so silly, but it's true. Anytime there's a therefore, you need to figure out what it's there for, right? What that means is, is whatever I just told you, this is the result of that. So because of the fact that there will be people that say, Lord, 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 and he says, depart from me. Because of that, he says, here's the deal. Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the rivers rose and the winds blew and pounded that house and yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house and it collapsed. And look at that last phrase, and great was the collapse of it. I've always read this as the continuum of maturity, and that may very well be true. That the man on the rock was mature, and he was following the things of God, and he was able to withstand. The man on the sand was immature, but, but yet in, maybe. But there's a great chance, there's enough of a chance for my soul to be grieved, because it is in reflection of the passage before. Therefore... Because I'm going, Jesus says, because I'm going to tell those that are professing active believers within the quote-unquote Christian community, I'm going to tell them to depart from me, you that work iniquity and are lawless. Because that's true, he says, he gives them an example. And here's the dividing line. Those who hear my words and act on them. That's not work salvation. That's obedience. When the Word of God is opened and it reveals to us through the power of the Holy Spirit something in us that doesn't match up with His design for us, we have one of two options. We stiffen our necks and say, that's fine, I'm going to do it my way. Or it drives us to our knees and we beg God for mercy because here's the, the big problem in Scripture. God is holy and he is righteous, and he is pure, and he cannot be in communion with us as broken and sinful people. He can't because of his nature. And so the big problem in all of the Scripture is how does a righteous, holy, pure God commune with broken folks like us? Because he does. A way had to be made. And that's the Son of God. Jesus Christ came and he was, he was killed. 
And when he was in the garden asking, he, I heard a guy say this the other day, he said when he was in the garden praying, you remember he prayed, he said, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. In, in Hebrews chapter 5, we see that it is by suffering that Jesus himself learned to obey. He wasn't just asking for God to, to stay the whips and the spear and the spikes. That was bad enough. But the cup that he was asking about was the judgment and the rejection of his Father. And even Jesus himself didn't want to drink it. But how did he end that scenario? Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He heard the voice. Of the, the word will tell us that Jesus did nothing and said nothing except for what he heard from the Father. He didn't do anything that the Father didn't tell him to do. He didn't say anything because he was in such communion with the Father. And when he heard the voice of the Father, even if it caused him to have so much consternation as the Son of God that he sweat bullets and blood came off his face, it got to him so he didn't want to do it, and yet he obeyed. And then he calls you and me to be like him. So now you understand my quandary. How is it that professing believers of God can look into the face of God through His Word and stiffen their necks. And I came to one of two conclusions. Either they're sheep that have come as far as they're willing to come and they're in that place where God has said, and I'm not talking about an occasional slip, by the way. I'm talking about a lifestyle. I'm talking about a daily outlook on life. And the way that you see the world, we would call it a worldview. And the way that you continually, habitually, and that I continually and habitually conduct my life, whether it be in accordance with his will and his word or according to my own flesh. Maybe they're sheep and they've gone into a place where they said, I'm not willing to deny myself, as the Bible says. I'm just going to embrace everything. And maybe there is, as the Scripture says, maybe they're being turned over to a reprobate mind, to be destroyed in the flesh so that their soul might be saved. Y'all probably had family members and good friends that you knew when they were teenagers or they were young adults. They made professions of faith, and you're like, I know it's sincere, and then they go completely off the radar, and you wonder, what happened? One of two things. Either they've been turned over like the prodigal son to go live and be debauched so that they can be destroyed because they're loved sons and daughters of God. And it says he chastens those whom he loves and he will go get them even if he has to crush them to bring them back. Or there's the other option that terrifies me. They're not sheep at all. But they're goats. When a goat hears the voice of the shepherd... A goat will ignore it. Because the Bible says my sheep know me and they hear my voice and they follow me. The realization that I came to was one of those two things is true. It has to be true. If someone who claims to be a follower of Jesus and refuses to do what he says, 
And I don't mean just accidentally hitting the mark because they're not mature and don't know yet. I'm talking about they know the truth, willful disobedience and walking. I understand what this says. I understand this says I'm supposed to love my enemies, but I want to be hateful and bitter to them anyway. When it says in here, I'm supposed to do good to those who persecute me, and all I can do is hope that they get theirs. I'm so tired of hearing people say, I hope Jesus comes soon so he can put his wrath on everybody else. That is not the way that God has called us to be. It ought to grieve our souls that he might come before they are converted. But it doesn't. Because somewhere along the line, we've looked into the infallible, inerrant, inspired word of God and decided it's not for me. We've decided that we can explain it away and make, well, he didn't really mean love your enemies. He didn't really mean that. But they're trying to kill us. He didn't really mean that. No, that's what he meant. Because we're different. This week, I've seen professing Christians get so bent out of shape because they've forgotten that their citizenship is not here. Our citizenship is in heaven. We, the Bible says we are sojourners. We are strangers in a strange land. This is not our home. And yet at the same time, we're instructed in Scripture that he says, wherever city I send you to, you do good for that city. You build things and you do good to people. And we see in the Scriptures, we have instructions. was told this week that we don't need repentance. All we need is to tell people about Jesus. And I want to ask you this. What are we going to tell them about him if we're not willing to obey him? That's why I say a lot of professing Christians, the last thing they need is another Bible study so they can learn even more about Jesus that they already don't obey. Let's start obeying what we know. Let's get back to the real basics of Scripture, which are this. Love God. Love others. Pour into His Word. Pray. Ask the Holy Spirit of God to change us. So I titled my sermon this morning this, The One Thing That We Need. And that thing, whether you're a a sheep struggling or whether you're a goat that ain't in, the one thing we need is repentance. As people of God, as a nation, as individuals, you know what I need? I need to repent daily. We have adulterated the gospel of Jesus Christ and taken repentance out of it and made it into this silly thing that says God wants to give you your best life now if you'll just talk to Him and love Him. And we've taken repentance out of it. And I said it this week, if we divorce repentance from the gospel, we're left with no gospel at all. So what do we do? I'm going to read you some scriptures and then we're going to pray. I want to invite your attention to write these down if you want. I'm going to kind of speed through them because I don't have time to turn. I have the luxury of having notes. In addressing this idea of repentance, I want to tell you why I know this. Because I know me. As one pastor said one time, I need a powerful God that can wrestle this flesh down to the ground in submission. That's what I need. I don't need a mamby-pamby God that doesn't want to do anything. 
I need to repent every day, all the time, in a constant state of repentance because I am a busted up, jacked up individual, just like you. I'm not telling you, a lot of times preachers and pastors will get up there. I don't like being up there because it makes me feel like I'm in some sort of an exalted place. I like to be down here. Guys, it's just us. (laughs) We're just folks. I'm as messed up as you are. We don't like to talk about it, but it's the truth. Acts, 30, Acts chapter 3 and verse 19, the Bible says, Repent, therefore, and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. How many of you want to have your sins blotted out? And yes, they were taken care of at the cross. But every day, we got to wake up every day, go to bed every day, go to lunch every day, and be looking to the Lord God Almighty. What do I need to repent for? And the word repent simply means to stop and do something else. It doesn't mean, look right at me, it doesn't mean feel sorry about it at youth camp or at the conference and come and quote-unquote rededicate your life. He's calling us to give our life, not rededicate it, to lose it and give it one time for all time. Because here's what I'm going to tell you this morning. If we would give him our life and encounter the Holy Spirit of God like these cats did, there's no such thing as a rededication. There's just a deeper and deeper and deeper walk with the Lord. Let me show you a contrast between these two groups we've been talking about. When you come to this group over here and you say, the Bible says you can't be bitter and angry anymore, their response is, oh my goodness, I'm wired for bitterness and angriness. How can I stop this? They go to their knees and they ask God for help to become more like Him. You take that same passage to this group and they'll give you 50 reasons why it's okay for them to be angry and bitter because they're confronted with the word of God and not willing to repent. But you know what that means according to Acts 3.19? Those sins, I'm telling you right now, if you can be confronted with the word of God and it doesn't do something to you, you need to do a heart check today. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17, the Bible says, From that time Jesus, Jesus himself, began to preach saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's this little thing in theology we call the the right now and the not yet. Jesus came and he said the kingdom of heaven is right now. He did not save you to suck you out in the rapture and let everybody else go to hell. He saved you to share the gospel with them while we're here. And if we're not living in obedience to the gospel, the message of the gospel is so watered down, they'll never believe us. Now, their salvation's not on our head, but our obedience to our part in their salvation is. And our obedience and our instructions are in Matthew chapter 28 to go and teach, make disciples, and to teach them everything that I've commanded you. What's the, one of the first things that Jesus commanded them? Repent. John the Baptist came on the scene. Repent. If you think that evangelism doesn't include repentance, you don't know what evangelism is and you've lost the gospel. Hear me this morning. Repentance. It's not preached on a lot anymore because it makes people go out the door and not in the door. And I'm telling you, it's time for preachers and pastors and elders and deacons to stop worrying about how many people come in and start being faithful to the Word of God so that it can actually change people's lives. Because you can have all the bells and the whistles and all the fun and all the lights and the smoke and the whatever, but if you can't worship God without that, you'll never worship God with it. I'm not against it. I like it. I love it. It's great. But sometimes we need to step back and say, are we true to this word and are we obeying him? Acts chapter 17 and verse 30. The Bible says that times of ignorance God overlooked, but now, hear this, he commands all people everywhere to repent. 
So if you're sitting here this morning saying, that's a great word, brother, but it just doesn't apply to me. I'm doing okay. You know what? You probably, maybe you are. But I promise you, because you're broken, there's something that you need to bring before God. Even if it's just to say, God, bring me closer. Make me have more fear of you. Make me have more awe of you. Make me have more affection for you. Make me love my neighbor more. Make me love the Democrats more. Make me love the whatever more. I'm serious. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 8, for us to bear fruit keeping with repentance. If you recall in Matthew chapter 7, in that last section, the dividing line was not whether or not you heard the words, it was whether or not you heard the words and acted on them. That's not work salvation. I'm, I tell people, I've been saying this for 25 years, it's not conversion, then discipleship, and I want to be like Jesus. I put in my notes like this, we have, we've done this really silly thing, well, we want to get saved, I'm, I'm saved, but I just, God's just not, He's just not Lord of my life yet. Hogwash. Hogwash. He's either Lord of your life or you're not. My sheep hear my voice, he says, and they follow me. We've been doing something really silly for about the last 50 years in the church. And somehow we backed off what it looks like to, to follow Jesus. We became a political party group and not a theological group. We have the answers to life. The Bible says, Life and death has been set before you. Choose life. I'll leave you with this one. In Luke chapter 13 and verse 3, he says, No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Did you hear that? Unless we repent. That's heavy stuff, isn't it? I hope, I hope you weren't really showing up and just feel all fuzzy today. Because the Holy Spirit sat on me and he was like, and here's my thing, I may never get to preach again. I'm dead serious. There's snow coming in. He could, he could take me on the way home. You may say, we've had enough. Please don't come back. This may be it. I don't want anyone to perish. And I'm deadly afraid that I've got some people that I love with my soul based on the fruit that I see in their lives. There's evidence that they don't know who He is. I pray that they're sheep that are just jacked up and that He'll get them and bring them back. The problem with that even is I know He's going to have to bring them back kicking and screaming. He's going to have to take everything they've got. And I don't mean money. But more than that, I fear that he won't go get them because they're not his. The Bible says that judgment must begin with the house of God. We've got to stop getting wrapped up in what's going on in the world. Because I want to tell you, like I told someone this week, it's not going to get easier. Read the book. Fleshly speaking, that is. But you think it's it's a you think it's scary that they'll take your earthly freedom. They can't take your heavenly freedom. 
There's a freedom in knowing the Holy Spirit of God that transcends anything even our founding fathers could have come up with. As wonderful and great as it is. I would submit to you that the guys in the New Testament lived in a more jacked up world than we do. I've never driven to Walmart and had the road lined with crucifixes with people that I knew hanging and rotting with buzzards picking their eyeballs out. They did. James was killed by the sword by Herod. We studied this the other day. What did Peter do? He went on with his business. Now, the argument could be made that they got to go on with their business because Herod was dead. But Herod wasn't the only man in the world persecuting them. Read your church history. Read Fox's Book of Martyrs and see what other people faced in this life and in their death. We get upset about persecution because we can't go somewhere and get a cake made. Hogwash. That's an irritation at best. And maybe a precursor to the real thing that's coming. But here's what I want to tell you this morning. I've got a lot of friends who do a lot of prepping and getting ready, and I'm not saying that's bad, because you know what? I've, I stock some, I've got like seven packages of toilet paper. I ain't going to lie. you know what here's my question to you are you ready when it's illegal and not just inconvenient to be a christian are you ready can you go home right now and open your bible and feed yourself and your family if you can't Shame on all of us who've ever held a leadership position, myself included. Because a day may be coming. When, like the stories of people that come back from China and Iran, where they meet in the middle of the night under the cover of darkness, and they have one page of a Bible. And they take turns memorizing it. And then someone will tear it up, burn it, or eat it, or pass it on, or something, so that they don't get caught with it. That day may be coming. I don't tell you that to scare you. I don't tell you that to discourage you. I tell you to encourage you, because in those circumstances, the church of God begins to explode. The church of God prospers. You know why? Because then, according to the book of Philippians, the Bible says if you really want to know him, part of that path to getting to know him, and like Matthew 7, know him, is to fellowship in his suffering. I don't want it. I don't welcome it. But the scripture says it's coming. Tim and I talk about this all the time. I don't want to be the guys in Hebrews who are hiding in holes and caves, not seeing the promise, and run down underground. I don't want to be those people. But if we are those people, we have a hope. We have power from on high that we have so long looked after and just ignored to not only survive, but to thrive. And when they come to get us and we say, God, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. That's not because we're disciplined. It's because the Spirit of God speaks to us. Do you really think Stephen had that much fortitude? He was a jacked-up dude just like you and me. 
as human as they get. And they're pounding him unto death with rocks. And he looks up and the Holy Spirit of God in all of his mercy says it takes back the back the curtain and he sees heaven and he says god forgive he had love in his heart for his enemies and those that persecuted him unto death and all that i've seen this week out of professing christians is hatred and bitterness and it's not the way it is not the way i'm not even saying who's right or it's wrong We've got to be like Jesus was outside of Jericho. I'm on neither side. I'm on his side. And when we start showing love and compassion for people who would just as soon that we die, then we can know that we're on that hard, difficult, narrow path. One of the greatest lies that's ever been perpetrated on the church is that if you'll just believe in Jesus, everything will be okay. Whoever said that's never been to a third world country and been drunk out of the car because they had Bibles. Anybody who said that's never done enough for Satan to get upset enough to come attack your family. I would submit to you this. When we start to follow Jesus, he said, don't think it's strange, this fiery trial which is to try you as though something strange has happened to you. It's coming. And it's not even scary. That's the encouragement I want to give to you. The grace that God gives us, the power that he gives us through the Holy Spirit of God, if we will just yield us. Oh, our pastor said something last week that just blew me up. We do this all the time. We, we, we invite you. We pray we'll invite the Holy Spirit to come be with us. I'm guilty. I do it all the time. Oh, Holy Spirit. And he says, the Holy Spirit's already here. What we need to do is ask him to give us the strength and the courage to enter his presence. Oh, that was good. That blew me up. Who do we think we are that we can invite or disinvite the Holy Spirit of God? You see the problem with our arrogance? What do we need to do? The one thing, guys, we, you say, but there's, just, there's only a few of us here. Jesus took 12 guys whose hearts were fully devoted to him, and he changed the literal course of eternal history. Stand with me. We're going to enter into a time of prayer. I told you to write some things down if you needed to. Maybe you don't need to. Maybe you know them. In my time here, I've not given an altar call too much. Thank you. I'm not much on altar calls. I don't need people coming down here to make me feel better about myself. Matter of fact, sometimes it's counterproductive to me. But I want to tell you this. The Holy Spirit of God is moving. And He's calling us. He's calling us to repent. Now here's my deal. Look right at me, guys. I don't know what your repentance needs to be. I can tell you what mine is. I don't mind telling you. I'll lose my temper. I get wound up about things I shouldn't. Thank God I'm not a violent man, but I sure am an angry man sometimes. Boy, things get on my... Because I have, I have passionate ideas about everything. And when people cross that, I get angry. 
And it's a daily thing where I have to die to myself and come to the Lord and say, I repent. Ask my children sometimes if you ever get to meet them, how many times their dad goes to them and said, son, I, I lost my temper, man, I'm sorry. What you did was wrong, but what I did was wrong too. Can you forgive me? Let's pray. Father, we love you. You are good. You are holy and pure. And you are righteous above all things, God. We can't come into your presence, God, but that you made a way. I'm so grateful this morning that you did. Thank you for Jesus. Father, help us today to live like your word says to live. God, help me. Oh, gosh, I'm broken. I'm, Lord, I'm, you know me. I'm broken as anybody. I repent. Father, we repent for being lackadaisical in our approach to the word. Father, we repent of letting other people be responsible for our own spiritual development. Father, we repent of idolatry that we've brought into the bride of Christ. We repent. Give us strength, God, and courage in Jesus' name. As they sing this morning, I'm going to invite you. If you want to come pray, great. If you want to pray where you're at, pray where you're at. I want to encourage you to grab somebody near you that's close to you, and y'all pray together. We'll enter into this time of prayer. I'm not here to beg you down the aisle. I don't need that. But what I do want is I want to ask you to let the Holy Spirit of God speak to your soul. And where he tells you there needs to be repentance, give it to him today. As they sing, you pray. Just enter into an attitude of prayer and you pray. If you need something, you let me know. I'll be happy to pray with you. But I just want to invite you to seek him and see what he does as we sing.